Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which Jeremy Hardy uses the airwaves to burst into the homes of the British like a big hairy Viking wielding a sword of whimsy. This week, how to make your presence felt. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone, to my lecture. Obviously, I use the term everyone loosely. Some people may be ill or abroad. <laughs> but those of you who are listening will now hear the studio audience welcome two people from the world of reading scripts for money, Gordon Kennedy and Mera Sayal. Since last week's programme, letters have been pouring into the BBC. Unfortunately, none of them have been for me, so we've been opening other people's. Gordon. Uh, yes, Jeremy, this one says, Dear Nick Ross, I've been trying to call you, but you've been engaged. Could you call me back? <laughs> Tuesday mornings are not very good for me, but any other day's fine. I mean, there's nothing important. I just wanted to find out what Sue Cook is really like. Uh, thank you, Gordy. Mira, what have you intercepted? Yes, thank you, Jeremy. Uh, this letter was to Sue Lawley. Dear Miss Lawley, I always enjoy your programme, but I am concerned that people on the desert island are sharing records and books. <laughs> there must be thousands of celebrities on the island, and I don't know how big it is, but some must surely have met up by now. <laughs> are they allowed to make tapes for each other and collaborate in developing a hunter-gatherer society? And what are the rules about the luxury items? Are they allowed to barter these? I am concerned that the Bible and the complete works of Shakespeare are being used as paper money, as there must be a surplus of copies by now. <laughs> and uh, here's one addressed to feedback. Dear Mr. Dunkley of the Financial Times, my surname is also Dunkley of the Financial Times. Do you suppose we're related? <laughs> Thank you, Gordon and Mira. More of other people's letters next week, but now on with the lecture, How to Make Your Presence Felt. I have divided the lecture into three sections, the first of which is How to Stand Up and Be Counted. In a literal sense, if you are to stand up and be counted, there should be more than one of you. It's not much good being counted as someone who believes that Michael Howard is possibly quite a nice person when you get to know him. <laughs> this is not to say that you have to be one of a multitude before it is worth speaking out. Someone has to start the ball rolling. Not supporting the royal family was once an extreme political position. Twenty years ago, republicanism ranked somewhere between bestiality and syphilis as a thing to own up to in public. <laughs> In 1977, the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen caused genuine outrage. Today, it seems hard to understand why it wasn't our Eurovision entry that year. <laughs> In other words, it needn't take long for a fringe view to become quite commonplace, but it does take courage to stand up for ideas which seem absolutely insane to everybody else. One has to admire Jack Straw, for example. Among other things, Mr. Straw has called for a discussion about a national bedtime for children. It was fair enough for him to point out that parents know very little about how to bring up children. His own parents sent him to boarding school. And taken in isolation, the idea of national bedtime might lead one to conclude that he was just cranky and overtired and he was showing off. <laughs> But he then did what all politicians do in that situation. He said that his remarks were only intended to provoke discussion and that they were taken out of context. Not only is backpedalling a timid way of standing up to be counted, but you're never going to shake off what you said anyway. Jack Straw is surely old enough to know that if a politician says something that is even more stupid than the rest of what he says, it will be taken out of context. If you produce a thousand-page document on homelessness detailing all sorts of innovative proposals to tackle the problem, it could be the words, let's have a cull, that stick in people's minds. <laughs> 
But Mr. Straw's pronouncements have at least opened up a healthy debate about whether he is buckingly clueless or simply weird. I suspect he watches the Kane mutiny and finds Captain Quigg's behaviour eminently reasonable. Tony Blair has tried to take some of the pressure off Straw by appearing equally neurotic about some of his concerns. In January, Blair said he wanted to do something about aggressive beggars who push people up against a wall and demand money effectively with menace. He's obviously confused. Those people are muggers. <laughs> Doubtless he is also concerned about intrusive beggars who enter our homes and take money and electrical goods without asking. Armed beggars who attack security vans. And road beggars who lose their tempers while driving and attack other motorists. New Labour's obsession with law and order, discipline and nuisance demonstrates that they are looking for the votes of what is often called Middle England, the patio phalangists who subscribe to the vague and paranoid feeling that everything has gone too far. People who get their information from Paul Johnson, a man whose column should have the words Paul Johnson is unwell printed underneath it, <laughs> even when he writes it himself. Such people fulminate against political correctness and minority interest groups. When they're feeling especially persecuted, they will even accuse single-issue campaigns of being well-orchestrated and well-organised. For thousands of years, the rallying cry of the left has been, I thought you were bringing the leaflets. <laughs> but now we are accused of organisational flair. Of course, single-issue campaigners are not necessarily left-wing. If anything, they tend to want to be seen as respectable and having the widest support possible. In every campaign I've ever been involved with, we always seem to get rather preoccupied with the backing of celebrities. Right, uh, item three, open letter to the press. Uh, Karen, could you fill us in on who has agreed to become signatories so far? Right, so far, um, Julie Christie, Melvin Bragg, Theresa Gorman, Kate Moss, Sir Peter de la Billiere, Claire Short, Sir Harry Seacombe, Harold Pinter, Squirrel from Gladiators, <laughs> Professor Stephen Hawking, Professor Shaking Stevens, Lord Soper, someone from Emmerdale, two of the Fugees, Martin McGuinness and Anushka Hempel. <laughs> Uh, can you remind us of the wording of the letter? Well, we wanted to attract the broadest support possible, so we chose a statement that the widest number of people would feel able to put their names to. The exact wording is, we, the undersigned, are all fairly well known. <laughs> right, and they were all quite happy with that. Well, Claire Short wobbled a bit on Friday. She wasn't sure about some of the issues involved, but Brian knows her personal trainer very well and they had a chat. Isn't that right, Brian? Yeah, she's back on board now, but we had a bit of a panic yesterday, didn't we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Squirrel came under pressure from his community to take his name off. What community? I don't know. The squirrel community, I suppose. <laughs> He's not really a squirrel. That's his stage name. Well, I don't know. I've never watched Gladiators. Could be the Gladiators community. Apparently, Dormouse is very anti-celebrity status. Anyway, Brian knows the set designer on the show, don't you, Brian? Yeah, we had a long meeting this morning, and he reckons he can talk squirrel around. Do you think the set designer might want to sign it? No, he says he'll do what he can behind the scenes, but he can't be seen to do anything publicly. <laughs> but despite all the failings of campaigns, the Daily Mail and its paramilitary wing, the Express, are convinced... <laughs> are convinced that the raggle-taggle bands of dissenters in this country add up to a prevailing orthodoxy which threatens the very way of life of Middle England. So the petty bourgeoisie must seize their barbecue tools and arise against minority interest groups. 
When a backlash is against minorities, stand up and be counted is a rather cowardly exhortation. It means you've got no case to make, there's simply less of them. But of course, democracy is about numbers. It used to be reviled as mob rule. Oscar Wilde apparently called it the bludgeoning of the people, by the people and for the people. Although he's also supposed to have said sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, when what he actually said was, oh, sarcasm, that's a very high form of wit, that is, I don't think. <laughs> And the problem is that it can be extremely hard to calculate what the genuine will of the majority is. For example, it is often said that Northern Ireland should remain part of the UK because the majority wish it to remain so. But that is because the border was drawn in such a way as to guarantee a unionist majority. We drew a line round all the people who are on our side. You could do that anywhere. You could draw a line round Buckingham Palace and say most of these people are of German extraction, so this is now part of Bavaria. <laughs> You could say that the Irish government should have jurisdiction over Kilburn and the entire London licensing trade. <laughs> anyway, the UK has jurisdiction over Northern Ireland, even though it is not actually part of Britain, but part of Ireland, as is plainly visible from aerial photographs. <laughs> as a consequence of this situation, the futures of both countries lie with a handful of Ulster Unionists at Westminster, who can save the government by sitting down to be not counted. <laughs> Although the government struggles on, we're all expecting Labour to win the general election. But we're not sure because opinion polls have proved to be such an unreliable guide to majority opinion. Let us listen to a pollster conducting a street interview to see how manipulable the results might be. Excuse me, sir. Sir, could I ask you a few questions? Uh, yes, all right. Mm -hmm. uh, would you support higher spending on education, even if it meant you personally having to pay higher tax? Yeah, if it was spent on that, yeah, I'd be happy for us all to pay more in tax. No, no, you personally, nobody else, just you. <laughs> oh, uh, no, no, I, no, I don't think that's fair. Right, I'll I, put that down as no. <laughs> uh, do you believe in a minimum wage? Yes. Even if it meant losing your job? Well, I wouldn't support it if it meant I lost my job. Right, but... so you don't support I... it because you're worried about losing your job. <laughs> do you think Britain should sign up to the European Social Chapter? Oh, definitely, yeah. They're selling naked photographs of your sister. What? Nothing. You said something about my sister. Did I? Yes, they're selling naked photographs of my sister. Are they? Foreign bastards. Mind you, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but, but I haven't got a sister. You haven't? No. Right then, that's no. Hey. Now, you don't want to change your mind? Oh, no. No, so that's no to the next question as well. Good, thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> if opinion polls are not to be relied upon, what about referendums? The argument against referendums, or referenda, you decide, is that... <laughs> that we elect representatives to take decisions on our behalf. And if we have referendums on everything, we'll just be voting all the time, watching tele-debates and phoning in our decisions, thus reducing democracy to the level of stars in their eyes. <laughs> At the moment, it is only suggested that we have referendums on matters of constitutional import, but even then, can a single vote take the place of the whole parliamentary process? What happens if one of us wants to table an amendment? Would each of us have to build our own upper house, a granny flat where an elderly relative goes over everything again? <laughs> voting in a tele-debate means voting yes or no on a simple proposition. The same with stars in their eyes. You can't give a qualified answer. You can't say, I like the bloke who did Woody Guthrie, but I'm not sure the go-go dancers really worked in his case. <laughs> Even with referendums carried out by the old-fashioned means of the ballot box, you can only say yes or no. You can't say, I don't want a single currency, but I'm buggered if I'm going to be on the same side as James Goldsmith. <laughs> What we're allowed to vote on will always be decided for us, like one of those viewers' polls where you get to say what you think has been the most important programme in the history of television, and the nominees are Soldier, Soldier and Last of the Summer Wine. <laughs> 
So perhaps referendums are a distraction, and what we ought to be concerned about is what politicians say in their manifestos. It is often said that Labour now are as bad as the Tories, although, of course, that is not possible. But the point is that millions of people are pinning a great deal of hope on a change of government, even though Labour have pledged that they won't change anything. Labour activists hope that Blair is just biding his time till he gets in, that he's just pretending to be a Blairite. Somehow, I think that's one thing he's sincere about. I can't see him on the steps of number 10, smiling, waving, shouting April Fool and nationalising the banks. <laughs> and what is the point in a new government that's no different from the old one? You wouldn't want a transplant from someone who's got the same thing as you, would you? <laughs> On the other hand, if Labour do win the election, they have so dampened everyone's expectations of them that we'll be hard-pressed to accuse them of being a disappointment. Just as when someone says, next on Carlton, drama. You don't expect Macbeth. <laughs> but when it comes to elections, we can never quite bring ourselves to think that things will be as bad as we say they'll be. We might say... Oh, I don't suppose it'll make any difference. But deep down we're thinking... Where? If the Tories do so badly that they all just kill each other in a great big knife fight, that'll guarantee Labour a second term. And if only Jarvis Cocker were to challenge Blair for the leadership and Dennis Skinner is elected as a compromise candidate and Nye Bevan shows up having lost his memory and not really died and Claire Short's long-lost ideology turns up after years and years and Robin Cook turns out to be the mask, they might actually do something. <laughs> New Labour seem to think that everything the Conservatives have done is a fait accompli. But the Labour Party was founded so that it could abolish anti-union laws. That was the whole point of it. Just as the Anti-Corn Law League was founded to get the Corn Laws repealed. They didn't say, well, the trouble is it's the law, you see. It's too late to do anything about it now. <laughs> so if there's not much to choose between the parties, let us look outside the political mainstream. What about the people who really stand up to be counted, those who take direct action and risk the full weight of the law? It's actually very hard to stay within the law now because it keeps changing. And if we show ourselves prepared to abide by one law, an even tighter one is introduced. Pretty soon, if more than five people write to the same newspaper, it'll constitute an illegal gathering. <laughs> Tens of thousands of people can bring London to a standstill for no good reason, and it's lawful because it's called a marathon. Half a dozen environmental campaigners on a grass verge can be carted off to prison. Trying to organise a march has become a nightmare. You have to notify the constabulary weeks in advance and then endlessly negotiate with them to try and agree a route that doesn't take you under the hooves of the police horses. <laughs> Northern Ireland is rather different, of course, because orange marchers can go anywhere they like, and it costs the police an absolute fortune, especially the ones who are on the march and have to buy all the funny gear. <laughs> of course, Ulster Unionists are bound to get away with more because they support the government. But what about if you're a dissenter? If Britain does need an upper house, perhaps we should build it up a tree. <laughs> now on to the second section of my guide to making your presence felt. How to get everyone talking. Earlier we saw how Jack Straw had succeeded in getting us all talking. But as I also suggested, this is sometimes a retrospective excuse used by people who said something that got panned. An idea that's roundly drugged goes from being a policy commitment to a discussion document to a spelling mistake in the course of an afternoon. <laughs> If an idea is well received, the minister doesn't say, actually, I was only mucking about, but I can do it if that's what people want. <laughs> Does a politician ever say or do anything just to find out what other people think? What do you think about this idea of cadets? Do you think it makes me look fatuous? <laughs> 
It seems unlikely that politicians want to encourage public discussion of politics because such discussions usually involve us concluding that they're all arseholes. But they like to tell each other what we're talking about. An MP will tell the House what's being discussed in pubs and clubs up and down the country. But when were you ever in a pub and you saw an MP eavesdropping on the public and taking notes? Well, that's my view of the general agreement on tariffs and trades, anyway. No, I agree. Excuse me, but I couldn't help overhearing. I'm a member of Parliament, and I'd be very interested in using some of your ideas in a question I'm putting down in the House of Commons. Here's my card. Oh, OK. You know, you could be a researcher with a figure like yours. Um, perhaps we could discuss things over lunch. I could buy you a small flattened town. Jacuzzi. <laughs> And you get those columnists who write that something's being discussed by people on buses, but they'd phone the police if a bus ever came within a mile of their house. <laughs> when a person says everybody's talking about something, it just means that they are talking about it. It's hype, like when someone says, Everybody's coming down to World of Scissors! <laughs> or, Everyone's going to be there, so you've got to come! If everyone was going to be at the party, why would the host be so desperate for you to come? Wouldn't they say, I'm sorry, but I don't think I'm going to have room for you because everyone's going to be there. Oh, oh no, wait. No, there's a transport strike in Korea, so one or two of them might not make it, so I might just be able to fit you in. <laughs> Statistically, it's unlikely that many of us will ever get everyone talking. Most of us will do no more than provoke a bit of idle gossip or speculation about what it is we do all day. If you want people to make comments about you, that's easy. You can just walk down the street with a strange hat on and people will say, look at that bastard. <laughs> or you can just be a woman and people will say, look at that. But trying... <laughs> trying to engineer a conversation is very difficult. When someone tells us, there's someone you must meet, I just know you'll get on. Not only are you guaranteed to hate their guts, but you think, what must you think of me if you thought I'd like them? <laughs> And yet, if, like most British people, you suffer from crippling social awkwardness, you probably do try and make people talk to each other. At a party, for example, I will try and find any link to bring together two people who are having a perfectly good time on their own. I'll say, hey, you live in Britain as well, don't you, Michael? Or, that's funny, your mum's just died and your dad's just died. Maybe your dad should get together with your mum. <laughs> or... You know what you were saying about how you hate social workers? Well, Julie's a social worker, aren't you, Julie? <laughs> but having comprehensively covered how to get people talking, I shall move on to the next part of my guide to making your presence felt, which I have subtitled, How to Draw Attention to Yourself When You Are Below the Age of Majority. By the age of majority, I refer to adulthood rather than the age of the majority. Most people are of different ages, that's why we always buy each other the wrong thing. <laughs> But let us address ourselves to the issue of children trying to make their presence felt. The accusation of attention-seeking is thrown at children from birth onwards. If you are a child and you're in distress, a grown-up will say, he's just trying to get our attention, as if that is not a valid thing to try and do. If someone phones us up, we don't say, no, bugger off, you're just trying to get my attention. <laughs> Imagine if the Samaritans or the emergency service took that attitude. We'll just leave him to cry for a few minutes and then check on him. <laughs> The problem is, though, that children, and especially babies, will cry when there's really not much wrong, apart from the fact that they're bored. And they don't have the facilities that grown-ups have to correct that. When we're bored, we decide to become parents, or at the very least, get a pet. 
That's why a child says, can we have a kitten? Us parents are such poor company, she'd rather have something that scratches her face and chews the feet off her barbies than us. <laughs> There's no use us saying, how can you be bored? You've got us. Parents are boring. Of course we are. All we talk about is being parents. We bore the tits off non-parents. We don't even think about it. We just cut right across what they say with, well, it's different if you've got kids. We just trash any argument they might have. They say, well, I'm not sure banning the media is the answer. And we say, well, it's different if you've got kids. <laughs> and the more kids you have, the more clout. I was arguing with another parent about school uniform. I said I was against it. And she said, how many children have you got? I said one. And she said, well, I've got five and there is a difference. So my opinion doesn't count because she's got a production line in her vulva. <laughs> On that basis, Victoria Gillick would run the bloody country. <laughs> Parents are bores. We say it's hard for people who haven't got kids to understand, but it's not hard for them to understand. It's just boring for them to understand. Key stage two reading books and child-friendly camping facilities are not interesting. <laughs> Being able to drink till five o'clock in the morning and stay in bed all the next day is interesting. <laughs> Parents are boring to non-parents, and most children are non-parents, so ipso facto, parents bore their children. A child finally gets our attention, and we say... Oh, all right. I know you're bored. Why don't you help me wash my geology finds? <laughs> and they're so bored, they do want to help you. Bless them, but it's hard for them, because they can't do much. Kids can't recover a lost file when you've corrupted your hard disk. They can't take the car in to get the wheels balanced. There's hardly anything they can do without getting it wrong and making you cross. They can help make pastry. So you end up making pastry that you don't want. That's why gingerbread was invented. All it is is spicy Play-Doh, only it doesn't smell as nice. <laughs> but a child can press down on the cutter so they're helping you. And they're bored after five minutes because pressing down is only so much fun. Or they get upset because a leg falls off and it takes you an hour to clear up and then they don't want any because they've been eating Play-Doh all afternoon. <laughs> so yes, kids just want attention, same as we all do. There are things you can do as a parent to make life easier for yourself, but parents tend to mess them up too. For example, a new baby brother or sister is potentially a great plaything, but it's the baby. Now, tomorrow, Mummy's going to be bringing home your new baby brother. So, you've got to remain silent from now on and move into the crappy room. <laughs> Isn't that nice? There's no wonder most of us are petrified the first time we hold a baby. We all grew up thinking if you're not careful, your thumb will go straight through its head. <laughs> if you are a baby, you generally get quite a lot of attention, sometimes when you don't even want it. As time goes on, you become less and less interesting to the point where you've become this awkward, sullen person no one knows quite what to do with. Even by the age of two, your charms have faded, your looks are going, no one wants to pick you up anymore, you fall down all the time. It's like being a journalist. <laughs> And then there's the frustration of not being able to speak properly and say what you want. The first 10 or 20 things you say, everyone's really excited about. But after that, it's as though you've had a stroke. <laughs> and you don't just cry, you try to tell people, but because it's not a perfect sentence, it doesn't carry any weight. You're saying... Dad's pooing, pooing here. So all you get is... Yes, all right, in a minute, Daddy's talking! Whereas if you could say... Father, how would you like to walk around with a turd strapped to you? You might get the attention you require. 
There is a brief period when your parents suddenly realise you've become a person, when you can have conversations with grown-ups and tell them what you did at school, and they pretend to be impressed by your handstand. But the novelty of each advance in your development fades more and more quickly to the point when you're 30 and you say, Mum, I've been selected to captain the world basketball team against Mars. And she says, That's nice, dear. <laughs> Sadly, the best way to get attention at any age is to do something wrong. You can wander along doing good things and no one pays you any mind, but you do something truly appalling and people notice you. That's why Gordon presented the National Lottery. <laughs> it was either that or kill somebody. Isn't that right, Gordon? Shut it, shorty. <laughs> Teenage years are renowned for being the most awful time in life. On the one hand, you're so disabled by embarrassment, you just want to be a little kid again, a feeling which I found recurs in your late 30s. <laughs> On the other hand, as a teenager, you want to make your mark, and you're too old to do it with crayon. That's why you want to spray your name on walls. It's your last chance in life to sign things without having to put down a number and an expiry date as well. <laughs> you want to tell the world you're here, and yet half the time you don't want attention. At a family gathering, you'll recede as far into a corner as you can and read a book, and you can't even absorb it because you're waiting for someone to say, Hmm, that book certainly seems to have captured your interest. Who is this Sylvia Plath? One of the Spice Girls? <laughs> And you're thinking all the time and you can't believe the state of the world and you want to change it and everyone tells you you'll grow out of it because they care more about the colour of bathroom suites and that's supposed to be a sign of maturity. Psychologists even try to write rebellion off as an adolescent phase, as if October 1917 was somehow akin to skateboarding. <laughs> People tell you they used to be like you, but now they're more realistic. But who is the most naive? Someone who believes the world can be changed or someone who believes that a lot can be achieved through a partnership with private enterprise. <laughs> so that concludes my examination of drawing attention to yourself when you are below the age of majority. I've looked at three different ways of making your presence felt, but one aspect I have neglected to talk about is how to overstay your welcome. So to demonstrate this, I shall drag the program out by means of my question and answer session, Ask Mr. Hardy. <laughs> now, the lovely Rebecca Kirby is with microphone in the audience. <laughs> Oh, there's a man thrusting his hand up over there, and Rebecca now has to run all the way around. Yes. Do you believe it's possible to grow up, uh, be mature, and still remain interesting? Well, I'm always fascinated by the term mature student, which seems to me to be a contradiction in, in terms. <laughs> I always wonder whether they just sort of collect traffic cones from the side of the road like normal students, or whether they have traffic cones in the back of Sunday magazines that they look up and send off for to collect. <laughs> but, um... To be, to, to be, to be, to be, what was the question again? <laughs> Is it impossible to grow up, be mature and still remain interesting? Well, um, I would say that Barbara Carton is extremely mature and holds absolutely no interest to anybody, except possibly somebody with a trowel. <laughs> there seems to be some kind of ancient author under here. <laughs> yes, who... uh, Jeremy, totally off the top of your head, what would be the first thing you would like to stand up for? Well, straight off the top of my head comes dandruff normally, unfortunately. <laughs> and indeed, no small amount of my own hair. What is the thing that I would stand up for? A very good dandruff shampoo, actually. I was up. But I would stand up for the rights of all working people. In fact, why don't we seize the studio now, audience? <laughs> why don't you arise, you starvings from your slumbers, not be content? Come up here, present your own shows. The first thing that Marxists do in a revolution is to seize the radio station, and you're here. <laughs> 
Uh, yes. No, I was yes. just wondering if you've ever met any of the uh, members of the Shadow Cabinet at all. Um, I met Neil Kinnock once, and he's a tiny man, no bigger than your thumb. <laughs> like all famous people, all people are very small, you know. Oh, oh Kylie Minogue, tiny, tiny little thing. Amoeba, oh yes, tiny. tiny. Giant haystacks, tiny haystacks, we used to call them. In the old days. Oh, Boris Yeltsin can't be seen with a naked eye. No. <laughs> Well, I think it's time we called a halt, because I can sense that the audience is about to turn ugly, and they know oil paintings at the best of times. <laughs> so good night to you all. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by armchair revolutionary and barstool philosopher Jeremy Hardy, and starred debt chair metaphysicist Gordon Kennedy and bath chair Dadaist Mira Sayal. The producer was David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production. All the views expressed by Mr Hardy are also the views of the BBC. Thank you.